0: If you're looking for one of the most beautiful and playable custom acoustics on the planet, look no further than Ed Rice at Towier Guitars. Ed is a true artist, transforming exotic woods into magnificent, sweet-sounding instruments. Go to toeearguitars.us, that's T-O-I-R-G-U-I-T-A-R-S dot U-S, and contact Ed today.
1: Hey everybody, Brad and I want to say thank you for listening and thank you for the support. Please continue to listen and share this podcast on all platforms that you
0: can. And if you'd like to support us monthly, we're set up now where you can go to anchorfm Recording, hit the support button, 99 cents, 499 or 9.99 per month. Any amount would be greatly appreciated. Now back to the podcast. Up here recording podcast episode 58. What's going on, Neil?
1: What's up, buddy? How you doing?
0: I'm doing great, man. First day of the year. Seven, we hit 70 degrees, so... I've
1: been man, outside all day.
0: It's been awesome. Yeah, it's
1: been amazing.
0: I saw you brought down <laughs> Russell's Reserve 10-year-old, man. I
1: love this one.
2: <laughs> yes, it's excellent.
1: <laughs> this is what we call breakfast bourbon here. Oh,
2: beautiful. <laughs> uh, is it breakfast there? What time is it It's there? three, <laughs> but it's, it's you know... It's <laughs> three. It's good, close enough. <laughs>
0: Well, this is, uh, we had two 10 year old bourbons in a row. Yeah. We, we had Eagle we Rare last time and it still has the 10 year age statement. And yeah. We,
1: uh, we, we pretty much killed that bottle.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but we've got a great, uh, great guest again tonight. Yep. We've got Guy Keltner from Acid Tongue with us. Welcome, Guy.
2: Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you guys for
0: having me. We're, we're excited to talk to you. You're a little earlier than us. What is it, about noon there in Seattle? Mm hmm.
2: Yeah, it's beautiful out right now, surprisingly.
0: I think today must be beautiful everywhere. My son lives in Bismarck, North Dakota, and they were in the upper 50s today. Oh, were they? Yeah. So Nice.
2: Yeah. We got through that dark winter. Uh it's been terrible.
1: <laughs> Louisville's been terrible yeah. in general, but yeah, just, it's been so gray here lately.
2: Well, you know, welcome to the Northwest, man. <laughs> yeah. that's just life here. People are depressed. It's gray. It rains all the time, you know, and that's, I think that's why there's so much great music coming from out here. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) no doubt, man. No doubt.
0: So, Guy, why don't you start, why don't you take us back to childhood and share with us your first memories of music? And at what point did you realize that music was going to be something important in your life?
2: I think my earliest memories are sorts of the events That you'd take your kids to, especially like growing up in the '90s in Los Angeles. My parents took me to, you know, the Orange County Fair, shit like that. I remember seeing things like Taj Mahal Mm. or, you know, John Lee Hooker, shit like that, blues stuff. My my dad was huge into blues. My mom was really big fan of sort of the '80s music, you know, anything that come out of there, reggae music, that sort of thing. Bob Marley, and so i I remember going to a lot of festivals. I remember being indoors, and it's just everything being too loud for me and <laughs> squirming um and I mean, I was pretty lucky growing up because you know Southern California, we just had access to so much great music all the time in the Los Angeles area. You just don't miss a show. My parents were really into including me and everything they went to so you know, I got to see all the greats. I got to see Black Sabbath. I got to see ACDC. I got to see these bands. and grew up around that sort of thing,
1: Holy crap, which is man.
2: really fortunate because when you live in a different part of the country, you don't necessarily get that sort of access to music the same way. And really lucky. And I, I think I started figuring out pretty young. You know, I want to do this because just seeing people on stage did something to me. You know, there's something about experiencing live music at that age that's going to transform who you are. You know, what you're all about.
1: How old were you when you were going to these shows?
2: I mean, they were taking me when I was an infant, you know? I I was probably not old enough to talk when they started doing this, you know? They were dancing at the (laughs) Newport Blues Festival, that sort of thing with me. And I I can't think of a time I wasn't going to shows with them. The only reason they wouldn't take me is if it was maybe like an anniversary date or if I couldn't get in because I wasn't old enough. And even then, my dad was always trying to... Pull strings or bribe somebody, you know, pass a 20 or something to somebody, get me in there, that type of thing. Like, I just didn't get told no to that stuff. Even though I got told no to a lot, we were a very strict household. My grades were super important. Like, they wanted me to have access to music at at Hmm. all costs, you know? That's cool. Yeah. It was important. It was kind of seen as something it is seen as something that was necessary for our upbringing for our education for understanding the world around us
1: wow a lot of foresight there did did your parents play any instruments or sing
2: no they're not musical people you know when my dad was alive he was very much the antithesis of having any sort of rhythm you know anything <laughs> like that he just didn't have it in him and my mom you know i love her but she's just She doesn't sing. She doesn't do that. They just loved music, appreciated it, played it all the time for us, you know, spun records for us and kind of made sure we knew what was going on, like why it was important to them. You know, I remember my dad, like when I was in college, he would call me and be like, turn on you know kz okay right now they're they're ripping this old john mill and the blues Breakers song he wouldn't and he'd tell me the history behind it while he's shouting at me while the music's playing <laughs> you know <laughs> i think that was kind of it because not every not every parent's doing that you know and explaining historically why this matters to them i think you just kind of go oh that's old people music you know when you're a kid <laughs> and and write it off and do whatever else and and i did that to some extent you know i remember being into pop punk and you know rap rock or whatever the fuck was going on in the late 90s and (laughs) obsessing over that shit but i also i also appreciated the band of gypsies record you know and i listened to eric Clapton's rainbow concert and those were like things that my parents gifted me you know that i still listen to now
1: yeah that's it well it's interesting because you talked about your dad um and taking you know loving blues in particular and there's a lot of that in your music um it seems like there's a, a base there of some type of you know it's not blues but it, it there's that there's like an underlying blues heavy mm-hmm. feel but it's so unexplainable that, that, that if i had to explain your music i'd go ah, it's it, you, nothing is straightforward it's so interesting it's so well done i love it but if I would say there's any type of genre that I could point to in there, I think that that might be the one. There's some type of blues base in, that, in, in the things that you guys do as a band.
2: That's awesome to hear because that's kind of, I mean, that's, that's our bread and butter, you know, that's where it comes from. And even though I'm writing these sorts of poppy tunes still and kind of going for this neo-soul vibe, I think that the blues are just the, the backbone of everything we do. And it has a lot to do with that sort of delivery more than anything, because it's not necessarily the structure of a song or the melody of it as much as it's the attitude that goes into it. And I think that's something we've adopted, you know, quite often in how we play, especially since when you look at these old blues records, I mean, these guys weren't recording on a big budget, you know, it wasn't until like the late fifties and the sixties when they started getting into, you know, Atlantic studios and that sort of shit. So you have a lot of these really raw recordings from before then. I think, you know, in our day and age, we're doing a lot of that with our home recording and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. I didn't really have access my entire career to these major studios. So there are examples of songs I've done that have been well produced, you know, and that sort of thing. But a lot of what we've done is very low fi still or, or mid fi. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of rooted in that blues attitude and, and that punk attitude. Mm.
0: Do you keep that intentionally now? Since you have other resources now, do you still like to record in basements and bedrooms and home studios?
2: I I mean, like it is a <laughs> generous term. <laughs> uh, do I do it a lot? Yeah. Uh, and 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 yes, I take pride in the fact that, like, for example, some of these new songs you're hearing, I think there's still stems from when I was recording the initial demos on GarageBand, and those ended up in the final oh, cool. cut. So you're literally hearing my guitar plugged into my computer, basically, <laughs> and that's awesome because those, you know, not everything on the song was done like that. You know, a lot of it's using very nice equipment, very nice mics, et cetera. But it is kind of cool that I was able to nail the tone in the demo sometimes mm-hmm. too, you yeah. know, and that that gets used later by the producer. And and it's also been interesting to see that happen where maybe I've cut the demo got the songs arranged and I send, you know, who I'm having mix it or produce it, the entirety of it. And they end up using that stuff. And I go, Oh wow, that, I think that guitar riff or that vocal line was from the demo. That's awesome. You know, that there's some pride in that, you know? Oh yeah.
0: Your your parents were introducing you and making sure you're hearing and, and seeing a lot of different music. At what age did you decide you wanted to play music or did you start playing music?
2: I didn't actually choose that part. I was I was pushed into play, you know piano lessons really young, like age four or five, and didn't like that, but did it. Um, we moved uh, eventually, ending up in Seattle. And by that point, you know, my parents, when I was a preteen, bought me a guitar, and I loved it. I was banging on the thing for about a year, and I think they realized after about a year, oh, he cares about this. Let's get him some lessons, and so. They eventually found this teacher, this older guy named Al Katz. And he's sort of a session guy that's played with Edit James and Bo Diddley mm-hmm. and back Chuck Berry. Wow. I mean, I think everybody's back Chuck Berry at that age. <laughs> like he just did it all. And that really brought me closer to what I it was just nice having a teacher that cared about me, you know not only like learning, but enjoying what I'm doing and teaching me, like he would really kind of tune in on what I was reacting to and try to help expand upon that and go, Oh, you like surf riffs. Well, let's listen to surf records. And we'd sit in his basement and and this guy had thousands and thousands of records and we'll pull out oh, cool. whatever it took to get me excited about playing. And I'd want to go back, you know? And so, I got to hand it to my mom for finding, you know, my mom and dad for finding this guy. And then my mom driving me every Saturday for a couple of years there when I was a little kid, you know, so that I could sit mm-hmm. in this dingy basement and learn. <laughs> Cause that's what made it, you know. So thanks, thanks to her and my brother for sitting at a park nearby <laughs> waiting for me to get out of lessons, you know. <laughs> Honestly, just thinking about that brings up a lot too, because like I'm remembering like that age. I, that's also when I got turned on to like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with KEXP in Seattle, but this is sort of a powerhouse radio station, um, independent radio. And okay. it's it's kind of our NPR or KCRW, that oh, sort of okay. thing. Um, you guys probably have seen the Tiny Desk concerts and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. KEXP does their own studio sessions. Oh, cool. Those are really important. And, you know, Saturdays was... It still is. They do a reggae show from nine to noon. And so we'd be driving to North Seattle so I could go to lessons and that reggae show would be on. And that was kind of something I'd bring into the lessons. And then Al, my teacher, was really into reggae culture and had lived in Jamaica for a while in the 70s and 80s playing with a lot of these bands. So his record collection was insane because he could just pull out these very unique one of a kind forty fives and throw them on the record player and we go over the song over and over and over again, you know, and I come out and would know it, you know, front to back.
1: That's awesome.
0: Sound That's like perfect. you found a perfect teacher. No kidding.
2: Yeah,
1: definitely. Wow. Kudos to mom for finding that. That's amazing.
2: Yeah. The music education out here is 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 legitimate. You know, Seattle really takes pride in its musical culture and its scene.
1: Speaking of that when uh how old were you when you when your family moved to Seattle? twelve so twelve years old could you feel or hear the shift in what you were listening to in l a based on what you were listening to in Seattle at that age?
2: Yeah, I think you know it's hard to perceive those sorts of things at that age, so I can't say like I was particularly you know awake there and noticing that. I think what I noticed a difference in was going to school and the types of students I was surrounded by were different. You know, we, we lived on the east side of Seattle, which is particularly affluent and full of a lot of the tech companies you guys know, Microsoft, you know, um, Google has a campus out there now. And so the educa- I still went to public school and we weren't a particularly well-off family, but suddenly I went from being surrounded by other you know, low-income families to being surrounded by upper-middle-class kids because we were all mixed together. And this meant that I had access to kids who had amplifiers and homes they could play in and things like that. And I think just generally I was privileged enough there to meet the right people, be involved in such a way. And, and, And also, you know, that part of Seattle, the East Side, has youth centers that throw shows. So I grew up around having a place like the old Redmond Firehouse where... Fucking Elliot Smith and the White Stripes to perform there and stuff when they were coming what? up. Oh, oh no way! Really important. Those are very important venues to the youth scene out here. And I went on to join. We, we have a, a huge museum out here called Mopop that used to be called the Experience Music Project. It's this god awful looking building that Frank Gehry designed. Um. And they are a rock and roll museum, you know, on par with like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame kind of, where they have this huge collection of you know Jimi Hendrix's original guitars and clothing and Kurt Cobain shit and all that stuff. And yeah, they throw an all ages battle of the bands called Sound Off, and so anybody who's anybody in the scene out here, at when they were younger, they performed at Sound Off, you know, and we were all involved in that. And so. That was kind of me cutting my teeth at a really young age. Was getting into this all ages battle of bands, and that's kind of your first taste of the media out here. Your first taste of getting some airplay because I think there's like a couple radio shows that would actually play the bands, you know. And it's your first taste of playing in front of a big audience. And so that was the difference in culture moving to Seattle is that you just don't have those opportunities. Like Southern California now has a scene, and if you're a wealthy celebrities kid, you know, if you're well off, you're going to be all right down there. But I just think there's so much more opportunity. At least when I was growing up in Seattle, it felt like that. You know?
0: Were you with Ian at that point when you were at
2: SoundOff? No, no, we met much later. Um, I'm a few years older than him. And I, I worked in kind of tech and then advertising for a while and eventually got a job at a larger venue in town called Numo's and worked with Numos and another venue called Barbosa and a festival called Capitol Hill Block Party. I was a marketing guy for all that. I uh, was also performing in kind of underground rock bands, and I, I had a band for a time called Fox and the Law that would headline some of these bigger venues and was kind of trying to build a garage rock scene in Seattle. So Ian would... <laughs> kind of blast me with like messages being like, how do I get on a show like with his band and how do I do this? I need help, you know, and always pestering me like, you know, so-and-so said, you know, you have a hookup here and asking for, so I'm like, man, this kid's super hungry. (laughs) And we started getting together more and hanging out. And, you know, I think we both realized we were playing music that our hearts weren't in by that point. We were kind of doing corny out of touch, you know, I hate to call it, older folks music but that was what it was you know and we really wanted to do something closer in line with what we like what we really listen to and i think acid tongue was born out of that he's a visual artist so he kind of oversees all the visual elements of the band and you know we still listen to tons of old blues records garage rock records soul records etc but we wanted to also modernize the sound we're doing and add in synthesizers, mess around with the technology and how we record things, and just arrange things in such a way that we felt like we'd appeal to a larger audience.
0: The, the name Acid Tongue, how did you guys come up with that band name? It's a killer band name. <laughs> yeah.
2: I, I think having an Acid Tongue essentially means you just sort of spit the truth out, whether it's going to be well-received or not. And I've got a big fucking mouth, and, and so does Ethan. <laughs> and I would say on more than one equa- occasion, this is a term that's been used to describe shit that I've said or things that have been said to me or whatever. And okay. it really felt it felt fitting for this band because if you like are familiar with our lyrics or listen to our lyrics, they're not exactly super cheery. <laughs> um, we're writing yeah. about pretty heavy shit, and it might be under this veil of, you know, sort of like a naive young person singing it, but this is real heavy life stuff we're talking about here. And I think it's stuff that needs to be said. And I can, I would say that the the lyrical content of a lot of these psychedelic rock bands and garage bands that I see lately is pretty bankrupt right now. Um, There's a lot of throwaway lyrics being written. You know, this is a psych is a genre that's dominated by affluent white kids that, don't necessarily have a lot to say. And I think it's important to still try and, you know, have a message underneath the music you're, you're making and to try and put that extra effort into writing lyrics, because that shouldn't be the last thing you think about. You yeah. know, uh, most of the flu songs we love, we're not listening just for the music. I mean, these guys are bashing two chords on a guitar. So obviously it's what they're saying is what's important, mm-hmm. you know? because the playing is not always there. These guys aren't playing at this proficient level. It's it's the attitude. It's the whole package put together.
0: Mhm. Well, let's listen to an Acid Tongue song. I've got Home queued up. Why don't why don't you tell us a little bit about Home?
2: Yeah, I couldn't nail singing this song. I wrote this kind of at the start of the pandemic and it was supposed to be sort of I don't know. I was just listening. I was kind of uh, getting nostalgic like everybody did when the pandemic kicked in. And I was throwing on a lot of Bowie records and records by The Strokes. And was like, how do I match these two things up in my head? And then lyrically, I, I just couldn't hit the notes when we were singing. So I had Ian take a pass at it. So this is one of the first songs where he's taken the lead and sings lead on. Oh, cool. Um, so, you know, right here you're hearing Ian, the drummer, fronting the band for once.
1: And oh crap it, and
0: this song is uh has not been released yet is that right
2: no it's not been released we just shot a music video for it last week and I don't think it will drop for a bit you know we're, we're taking our time this year we have a bunch of material that we'd like to trickle out so we'll see when it comes out you guys are getting the exclusives
0: look at us Neil yeah I love it
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> alright let's listen to Home alright uh, that way when uh Love it. that first started coming down on us
2: no doubt oh my god i know right that was so devastating
0: i think the release of bullies started the pandemic didn't it yeah
2: <laughs> we had a we had a concert planned at a much larger venue that had to be slimmed down to this teeny tiny little 150 cap room because it was all that the government would allow open So release day was us scrambling to make this thing happen, performing on this fucking little stage in this hundred and fifty cap room out here and just being scared out of our minds that we were going to get sick that night, even though we wanted to play. It was that gamble of like, we still didn't know how bad the disease was. We knew that, you know, younger people getting it wasn't necessarily a death certificate there. So we weren't too afraid of that. Um, But at the same time, there was sort of a moral obligation to maybe not do shows. And so we felt kind of guilty having this thing go down. We did it, you know, and it was fun. It was a weird energy that night. I think everyone needed it. And in retrospect, I'm really glad we did it. Nobody that I know of got sick and we were able to kind of send off the old days in a sense and have one (laughs) last big party. And, you know in some ways I regret having the record drop right when it did. But on the flip side, I think it had to come out and you know, we're still working on other stuff and we're going to pick up the pieces and, and kind of move on from here. And I, I'm bummed it didn't do what it could have. And I'm bummed I didn't get the tour behind it, but I have fortunately mm-hmm. learned how to do all this home recording. And you guys are hearing a couple snippets from what that's been like this past year. Cause it's what I've been focused on is producing projects and, trying to get some new material done and something interesting.
1: Yeah, man. Bullies is a killer record. Um, I've listened to it a couple of times. It plays through well, but man, it's a really, really good, good record. And interesting. That's the thing, man, even with the home, like you, you talked about earlier, you can play two chords, but how do you play them? How do you make, make it stand out? How do you make, make it interesting? And that's track by track with bullies. Um, and even that song, Home, it's just, it's so well put together and interesting and, and makes you lean in. I love it. I love it.
0: So when you guys were able to tour, it, it, it's all, of course, it's always you and, and Ian, Ian Cunningham. But I was reading, you guys kind of have a rotating band from all over the world, it looked like, uh, rotating band members coming in and out. How does that work?
2: We have... Never had kind of we we tried at times to have like a full third or fourth member, and it's just been a struggle because of location. You know, right when we started the band, we knew we were gonna be living mostly on the road. So after a few months of doing our thing, I moved to New York City and Ian moved to Los Angeles, and we spent the bulk of the last five years living in those two cities respectively. And just know a lot of artists that do the same thing. Solo artists. I mean, Acid Tongue is basically a vehicle for my music. So I wouldn't call it quite a solo project because I need Ian to exist. And, you know, we are very symbiotic. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm putting in a lot of that labor to put my personality into this thing. And he's of the opinion that we really got to play with people who, who kind of understand the game plan. You know, it's like they're there for the tour. They're getting paid for that. And then we part ways, you know, and in the studio we bring in folks that we really clicked with on tour or care about that fit the song. And so they know their role in the studio and there's never really been a lot of debate about that. You know, I think maybe in the beginning it was a struggle figuring out that sort of format. But Mm -hmm. since then we've kind of just developed a great relationship with a lot of people and we've hit a lot of cities in the last five or six years. So we've made these kind of, Close bonds, you know, and we've got a band called the Mammoths in Texas that's backed us. And in Paris, you know, a lot of my wife's friends now back me, and some of my friends back me. In New York City, I had a full band that would play behind me. And then Ian put together a band that plays out of LA with me. So we kind of have different parts of the world sorted. So when we're there, it's a lot cheaper to travel that way. It's much cheaper to operate that way. And it allows me a lot of leeway because. It's fucking hard to operate as a four piece band when you're all broke. Everyone has jobs and it's hard to make yeah. decisions. And I don't want some fucking guy that works at Amazon telling me when we can tour or not like, fuck your job, you know, <laughs> like I'm glad you, got, you can afford, you know, but there's a lot of bands like weekend warrior bands like that and, and more power to those guys for still playing considering they have full time jobs and lives. But, I've been playing in those groups, you know, over the years. And I got fed up taking cues from somebody who doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. You know, I I'm in this to be in it. And when we go on stage, we lay down a pound of sweat every fucking time we give it all. We don't, there is no half ass acid tongue show and there's no half ass acid tongue song. You know, we have an attitude of putting it out there and we bring people on the road that we want having fun with us. So I don't want a burnt out group that resents me behind me. I want somebody who's fresh. So when I get off the road on the West coast, I fly out to Paris. I got another fresh group of faces that don't, you know, have those resentments building yet. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps our relationship really solid with everybody over time. Cause we all still keep in touch and we still play together and we still work on music together and send each other things. And my label freak out helps their bands out, you know, and we, put them on the freak out festival every year and book them in when we can and try to help our friends. So there's, there is a benefit here to playing in our band. You know, it's not like we're just asking you to throw your life away to go on a two week tour, you know,
0: that's a pretty good segue to some other things you have going on. Cause acid tongue isn't all you do. And you just, uh, you just mentioned, yeah. uh, your record label and, and the festival. How, how did those come about? How long have they been?
2: The festival came first. Really? Uh, so, You know, back to when I was working at that venue, I think I started at the venue, might have been even before I was working for the venue, actually, now that I think about it, because the festival started about nine years ago, and I had just moved up to Capitol Hill in Seattle, which is like our Williamsburg or our Silver Lake, that sort of, you know, neighborhood, and I was having a tough time sort of breaking into the machine, where you know, you just look at these festivals these days, especially the hipper ones. They're they're full of electronic music. They're full of a lot of artists they know are going to sell tickets to kids. And it's just not, you know, I don't look at a lineup and go, man, that looks fun anymore. <laughs> you know, and I had a big problem with that because I do see some lineups that I do think are fun. Like when I look at things like Levitation Festival in Austin is a great example of something where they have their scene completely understood and and that's something people fly to every year and want to go to. It's a destination for people. And I think we wanted to create something along those lines that is a full sensory experience. So over the years, we cultivated this festival where we book out anywhere from about 100 capacity to about 500 capacity rooms and spread them out through a neighborhood. Now it's become this neighborhood called Ballard, in Seattle. And so there's about seven or eight venues that are all right next to each other. They're all walking distance. And we can feature whatever we want. It, you don't buy a ticket because you necessarily know the artist. You buy a ticket because it's, it's Freakout Fest. And you go and you experience new things. And so I'm able to bring out bands I know from Europe that I fucking love or a bunch of the L.A. scene that I feel like doesn't get represented in Northwest can come up. And we can feature some very unique artists, and people will go there for discovery every year. And it's kind of a throwback to how South by Southwest was 25 years ago. Huh. You know. What, what we're trying to accomplish isn't necessarily, you know, competing with these behemoths like AEG and such. We're just trying to create a fun event we can look forward to every year. I think it's necessary for culture to progress because you need things like this to create a scene in town. There are bands that come out of meeting at Freakout Festival or via our label and other events we throw. And so this has become very important for us to sort of Like Our scene in Seattle right now is on life support. It is absolutely dire straits here because Amazon has just raised the cost of living. It's not just Amazon, but it's tech in general has raised the cost of living out here. So it is impossible to afford living in this city as a musician. And that means more hours spent at a job that you hate and less hours spent creating. And in order to sort of cultivate the scene we want, we need to foster growth by Creating these opportunities, you know, getting bigger events turned on to these bands, getting these bands the sorts of opportunities they need to keep moving, to keep going, you know, because if they don't have these opportunities, they're eventually going to fizzle out and just be a memory to the scene.
1: The first year you did Freak Out, what did that look like?
2: Awful.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And do you have a team or is this you putting Freak Out Festival together?
2: I we have a we have a team and a business license now, but that first year it was a bunch of us getting drunk and high in a basement, (laughs) making plans for a few months, and then taking that to some off-the-wall venues. And that first year, actually, our centerpiece was supposed to be the Comet Tavern in Seattle. I'm trying to think of what Louisville has. I mean, What's that uh, basement East in Nashville is probably the closest I can describe okay. to the, you know, it's something like that. Well, their landlord was a junkie and like the owner of the comment. And so he, he skipped town without paying his bills. And the comic gets shut down about a month and a half out from the first year. So I've got to stick our main stage in a dance studio <laughs> And we chose we, we now we now operate in November When the weather is still tolerable But at that point in time The only time of year we could get At a few venues that wasn't competing With something major was December So we did the first week Into December that year And the weather outside It was fucking 8 degrees So you've got you know, four, four or five venues that aren't very close to each other It's 8 degrees out and people are going up to a fucking dance studio to watch music, you know, it's one of the main stage oh. rooms. It was it was bizarre. <laughs> it was weird. People liked it, surprisingly. We sold tickets. We didn't lose a ton of money because stakes are very low with something like this. Um, it was definitely a labor of love. And I'm surprised it's continued for this long because we're we're next year will be a decade, 2022.
1: Well, yeah, man. I was wondering. I was wondering how you decided to you know the second year go, let's do a second annual <laughs> festival.
2: I gotta give a shout out to, to Nathan Casey he is the o g guy that I work with, and he's still on the team after all these years um and he sends this email or he'll do it during a meeting every single year. he goes, "All right, so are we doing this again?" And it is said said in the most cynical way possible. And I don't know why we all say yes. We always laugh our asses off when he says it. And it's become that running joke. But it literally gets said every single year. We've got to check in. Like, are we sure we want to do this again? (laughs) We have never made money.
0: How many bands are we talking about?
2: 60 almost.
1: Never? Never made money? Never
2: made money. There's no money in this game right now. You know, we're not at that level. Like, We might this year if we're lucky, we'll see, God willing, but we don't lose much. You know, we don't lose enough to stop doing it. And it's so much fun, you know, and it's such it's such a boon to what we do in this town for other reasons. I mean, this is building again, it's building our scene. We're putting our mark on it. So it's important to us for those Mm. reasons.
0: So Neil and I have been talking about securing a location here. We're in the middle of the largest municipal-owned forest in the in the United States, uh, Jefferson Memorial Forest. And securing a place in the forest and having a little festival with a, with some of our top hill guests that are able to play it and set up a stage. But man, when we just start talking about it and, and like, where do we take the first step? It already gets overwhelming.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah. Like, you know, where do you even go? I mean, you don't really ever know that's it, right? You kind of just, you need friends. I think that this couldn't be possible every year without a community that has both already existed here and also partially that we've cultivated because, you know, if you don't think that we've got family and friends just coming for free every year to volunteer for us, you're crazy. You know, we, we need that sort of help and it's important. And it's why I have to sit on the phone with agents every year and tell them, look, this isn't AEG you're talking to here. I can't pay that. And I also need the artist to understand the sort of energy that this festival is, because I don't like when we get we've had a couple of mainstream artists come through and talk shit to the staff. And I'm like, "Yo, you're yelling at a fucking volunteer. You know, this yeah. isn't yeah. this isn't someone you have the right to talk to like that. You know, don't come in with that energy. Like people need to know what they're getting into before they even play the event, because it's, it's all about community. It's all about helping out the little guy. And I, I, you know, I got to be honest, man. I'm really disappointed in musicians these days because a lot of them don't play with that sort of energy. They don't give a shit about that stuff. Back in the old days, you know, music was politics. And considering how politically polarized we are these days, you get a lot of hot takes and performative activism from musicians, but I don't ever see them fucking doing anything to better their community. You know, there's a lot of selfishness with, you know, my generation. And I obviously, as you can tell from the tone of my voice, I got a chip on my shoulder about it because it's really yeah. easy to complain and to poke holes in what's going on but it's a lot mm-hmm. tougher to do what we do every year and make something happen you know and i think it takes it takes cojones to go out there and and really try to put something together like this and and put your reputation on the line every year with it
1: yeah. yeah, no doubt
0: well said yeah no kidding so you had the freak out festival and then uh did did freak out records come from that or how did have how did the record label happen
2: yeah it came out of that i so Ian and I linked up with this guy, Skylar Locatelli, in town, and he ran a festival. He, he was working other jobs. You know. Now he works for KEXP as their business management operator, but he's got a much better business acumen than I do at times with these sorts of things. He's a few years older. It's been around the block, and we brought him in to help with the festival, and that first year he came in, I think, was year three or four of the fest. I want to say it was year three. We just knew we had a team starting to come together and we're like, this is clicking. So I needed a vehicle to put out acid tongue records because up to that point I had never dropped vinyl and you got to have a business license if you're going to start dipping your hands into that stuff. Mm. And there were other artists we have in our sphere that we wanted to help out. And so we decided to become incorporated as a label about the third or fourth year of the fest. And, Have kept going since it's been great you know that's another thing that really hasn't ever been quote-unquote profitable but it's opened a lot of doors for everything we do and it's opened up a lot of doors for artists we care about which is huge because i love seeing Mm
0: -hmm.
2: you know there's some really cool shit we've gotten to see in the past 12 18 months because of this label finally starting to click um and it was incredible you know Rolling Stone France came out and attended the, the last edition of Freakout Fest we did, and they did like a five or six page coverage. Oh wow, Yeah, it was like crazy opening up this foreign magazine and seeing all these small bands like Monster Watch and Smoky Brights, and the Grizzled Mighty. You know their photos are in <laughs> <laughs> being featured. It was awesome, that's you know. Awesome. And that that comes out of this community-minded spirit.
1: Yeah, that's killer. <sighs> yeah well so, and that also gives you some type of you know it not you're not patting yourself on your back but it shows that what you're doing is working
2: we need a reminder once in a while because i don't do it for those things but i'll tell you what man like that's the kind of shit we need to start getting so we can get those dollars. that recognition is not why i do it but it's something i aspire towards so that i can get my bottom line done every mm-hmm. year you know because i'll tell you what it's great when i call an agent and they go, oh yeah, freak out fest. So and so told me like that is huge. You know, because just a few years ago, I was sitting at a desk, you know, dreaming about this kind of thing. Mm. You know, I, I I can't tell you how much I don't miss being at an advertising agency and having to clock in every, being the guy who shows up late because he was out gigging the night before <laughs> and having to dress up. Like I used to keep a suit next to my desk so I could change when I got into work if I hadn't had time. And it was fucking boring. You know, I'm staring at Facebook or whatever, the news all day, trying to wait for the clock to run out. You're making two to three hours of real work stretching to eight. It's, it's a nightmare, you know? And I mean, obviously I was fortunate to have a job, but man, I don't know. Living like that just didn't suit me.
1: Yeah, I would say what you're doing suits you a lot more, man, <laughs> because you got the passion behind it and you're, you, you know, you're working to build something there. And that, that gives you a lot more purpose than clocking into a job you hate every day.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. You got to believe in what you do to some extent. I think that this pandemic year has really underscored that this, this sense of needing purpose is on everybody's mind right now. I mean, we're, we're well over a year into this thing now and you just see people starting to, to crack a bit under the pressure, you know? And I think some of what you're seeing when they crack is like, Yes, it is the government failing us. Yes, it is an unfortunate circumstances. Yes, it sucks just living sometimes. But on top of that, like people need a reason to wake up in the morning. And when they don't have that, there's nothing left for some people. And that's a real big shame, you know. And doing what we do right now gives not only us, but the people who are fans of what we do a reason to wake up, you know. And that's important. I think that's necessary for our survival as a country, Species, you know, mm-hmm. getting yeah, into some no pretty doubt. existential territory here. But, like, <laughs> <laughs>
0: it sounds like you and uh, and acid tongue, you know, you guys are very collaborative and you've got a lot of uh, collaborations going on right now and a lot of upcoming singles coming out of these collaborations. Is that right? Yes, yes. Is that something else that comes out of the festival? from meeting so many musicians or how do you hook up with uh, these other artists and decide who to collaborate with and,
1: oh, wait, and make I got this a, stuff happen? I got a question to, on top of that. Because you have access, like you said, when you go to New York or uh, w- Paris or wherever, do you have in your head with you and Ian a dream team? Yeah, do you yeah, go, yeah. oh man, that's the guy that I wish. and oh, and, yeah. and, and See, that's what I was thinking. I was like, man, there's probably a few of those people. Yeah,
2: yeah. We so so two questions there, and I'll answer the team one, because that's hilarious. Every year, (laughs) every year at Freakout, we kind of get a little taste of that. Oh. Because of who's there. And it's happened at South by as well, when a few of the bands that have members we play with are all in the same place. We can just make the I mean I cannot tell you how satisfying it is. Like, for example, at South by, I'm like, shit, the mammoths should fucking hop on stage with us for the next four gigs. You know, we're doing desert day stage. We're doing levitation stage. Let's give them a call. So I've got already a couple of members that are touring with me because we're going as a three piece because that's cheaper. Right. But suddenly Mm -hmm. at South by we're a six or seven piece and, there's dudes Uh, hanging off the fucking rafters with tambourines and there's a keyboard player fucking going uh, nuts and like (laughs) that's cool shit you know that is just cool spontaneous shit and i love that and so it culminated like last year at Freakout, out we had 10 people on stage with the band and it wasn't just like pulling randos uh, up on stage these are people who have played with me for months at a time so we yanked everybody out of that team and had our like our all-star lineup ones and it was like from all over the world you know we had members from mexico city members from paris members from london members from italy members from texas like all kind of scattered That's about cool. the stage it was fucking rad and it felt very much like that spirit of the 1960s when you think about bands like sly and the family stone or santana and shit like just blowing people oh, yeah. away we don't we don't see a lot of that anymore there's not this sort of like collaborative yeah. 60s rock vibe going on you know it's typically this band is this band you know so that's really fun yeah it's super exciting and oh, but I bet
1: that was a huge sound
2: oh yeah man I mean not only is it huge it's impossible to rehearse but like it works out some way it's just <laughs> it is a wall you know we're still dialing that part in but it is fantastic <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> yeah and I think is as you were saying about you know the collaboration side of it. It's hard to differentiate the two at this point. The band, the festival, you know, the label, all that. Oh yeah, we're just friends with everybody because of all this shit. You know, I I, I kind of lump music as a, one whole side of my life. You know, there mm-hmm. and you just meet people, and so I think when the pandemic hit, we've already you know obviously when we do our records, we're collaborating right then and there. But I think. During the pandemic, I was seeing, you know, Calvin Love, my, our friend from Ed- Edmonton. You know, he's posting about, all, you know, he's just live streaming shows and, and recording at home. So I'm like, great. He's got a home recording setup. I, we should try to do a single together. And, you know, I think everybody's thinking, like, how do we kind of push our careers forward when we can't be on the road? It's like, well, we can try to, like, pull in other audiences together. And so, you know, Death Valley Girls, they're another great band that we love playing with, love having on the fest that was a cool collaboration to do because, you know, it just kind of worked out. It took, it's, t- it takes a bit to get done. You know, it's a little clunky going back and forth over WeTransfer and Dropbox to make these songs happen. But I, I don't know, like you're hearing some of the products of it and it's pretty wild that it sounds like we're all in the same room when it's done.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that is nuts. So
0: you t- mentioned Calvin Love. Let's, let's go ahead and listen to, uh, all out of time. Tell us, uh, tell us about how that came about.
2: He's been really supportive, and vice versa. We just are kind of mutually fans of each other's music, and have kept in touch. and He was on tour with this girl, Matiel, from Atlanta, Georgia, and I think right when the pandemic started, we were supposed to all go hang out, and that fell apart. But we were communicating, and so we're constantly, you know, messaging and texting back and forth. We're like, dude, let's just do a song together and i don't know why it came out kind of disco glam cowboy <laughs> but i like it yeah, <laughs>
1: and yeah it's cool.
2: we kind of went you know we threw we, we had a, a the guy who did all the strings bill peterson he did all the strings for bullies um him and i were working on a movie soundtrack at the same time so i yanked phil into the studio and i was like can you lay down sort of a string element that would we were able to get rid of a lot of the guitars and let that sort of disco string vibe take over
0: oh cool All right, well, here it is, all out of time.
1: Yeah man that's a killer <laughs> that's killer cool. choice. I love the choice to go with strings on that. That's awesome. It gets, like I said just talking about your the the music in general not even though it evolved there was always the, there's always that element that it can be two chords, three chords, but it's not coming at you straight. It's coming at you from an angle that you don't think about, that I don't think from, as especially as a writer, I don't think in, at the angles that you're coming from, man. That it's so cool, so cool. That's that's even that right there, such just a cool thing to do. Go strings, what <laughs> <laughs> a cool choice.
2: Yeah, and that's a lot of what Ian brings to the table. To be honest, you know, I I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm probably writing a lot of this shit on an acoustic guitar. Or, you know, structuring some things out on GarageBand, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then after we have something that is the semblance of a song that we like, you know, it's him and me sitting together and going, fuck, is this lyric corny? Or does this really hit the right way? And who's right for this thing? Like, I, you know, we like to do as much of the instrumentation ourselves in the studio as we can. But there are a lot of times where he goes, guy, your bass playing, it just doesn't fit the vibe here. It's not vibing, you know. Or I'm like, Ian, you just can't play keys to the level we need here. So those are the conversations that lead to how we implement the instrumentation from that point on and really kind of feel that out. And plus, you know, at the very end of the day, we've got to take all these performances and mash them together and go, does this fit, you know. (laughs) And so yeah. there's a lot of left turns that happen. We might have something we're really excited about in the beginning that completely falls apart when we pull in an element we know is necessary. It's like, oh, man, those strings got to stay. But now that means this guitar has got to go, you know? Yeah. That's sort of the the, the huh. pleasure of working in the studio together.
1: Well, and, and having the ability to have the freedom to say, it doesn't fit, get rid of that, but this has to stop. That's just not having to clutter something because you wrote it on a, a guitar. You're not
2: exactly throwing
1: your ego into it and going i've got to have that in there because that's how i wrote it or that's the part that i wrote it on
2: to your point that actually goes back to when you guys were asking about you know why we operate maybe as a two-piece with all these rotating members it's it's exactly what you're talking about right there because i was there's a producer in seattle i was just in the studio with this week and he brought that up he's like you know it's just so hard to get from point a to point b with a full band because you know the bass player wants the bass on every song Mm. The, you know, the keyboard player wants their keys on every single song. And if they all sing, they all want their voices on there. So they don't have that ability to pull themselves back and pull their ego back and say, maybe I should sit out this song. Yeah. They think of themselves as this unit. And I think when you're trying to create sort of a broader body of work, you can't think that way, or you're going to limit yourself, you know, like the bass doesn't need to be on every track and not every track needs drums. And we don't do that sorts of things. I think what's great about working with Ian is over the years, He's had the ability to not only like he's he's got a, a six year old son, so he really has to sit out some tours and he replaced at times. And he's had to sit out even some sessions when it wasn't the right fit for the music. You know, even if he's still producing it, even if he's still helping with all of that element, even if he's singing on it, like he knows his drumming isn't necessary on everything. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of tough conversations the two of us have had to have over the years that I think have made our music so much better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, Guy, our listeners that want to follow Acid Tongue, get to know you guys better, where do they go to do that? How do they uh, follow you guys, find your music, find your socials, and that sort of thing?
2: I think the best place to start is going to Acid Tongue Music at, sorry, AcidTongueMusic.com. And is that what it is? I want to double check. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's still that. (laughs) Yeah. And then I think beyond that, you know, check us out on YouTube. Go hit us up on Spotify. Hit follow. Follow us on Instagram. We're just at Acid
1: Tongue. And there's a uh, Spotify, man. There's a lot of Acid Tongue music to listen to. So <laughs> yep. go listen. Great music. Yes. The way
0: we uh, way we were introduced to Acid Tongue and found out about you guys and, and listened to your music and realized we did your music was a good friend of ours. I think he said he was in Portland listening to a or went to see a big name show and was unhappy with that show and he and his wife decided to go out and and stumbled across you guys in a, a little club or something i think i'm pretty sure he said it was Portland. and, and i think he said and,
1: that he saw you he actually yeah, saw wow. you are playing and and googled maybe may just looked you up to see what 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 are people saying and then he said it was amazing
0: he called us up and said uh Hey, you guys gotta get this uh this man Tongue on your on your podcast, man. They're great. Been listening to them ever since I saw them in Portland. <laughs>
2: oh, that's so great. I wonder what the big name show was.
1: What was it?
0: He told us. Was, yeah, we probably should sure say.
1: <laughs> I would say if I remembered, if I remembered, I'd tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't remember either. <laughs> but it wasn't cheap. I remember they spent some bucks to go to the show, and then we're like, dude, this is terrible. He
0: said acid tongue was way better. <laughs> yes, he did. And he's been an acid tongue fan, fan yeah. ever since.
2: <laughs> 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 so kudos That's to you guys. That's tremendous. That yeah. is so awesome to hear. His name's Brent West. Yep. Thank you. Shout out, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys for having me on today. Hey, man. Thank Brent you. Brent West. We appreciate. Shout it. out to Frontwear. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and we're going to go out with Rock and Roll Revelation. You want to set Hell that yeah. up for us?
2: Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a straightforward rock song. This is this is Acid Tongue doing what we do best right now. So enjoy it because I hope we get to do more of this kind of music right now with a full band, you know. Huh. And um Stay tuned. We're going to have, like, an animated music video coming out for this thing soon. Oh, yeah. Cool. So, you'll see that dropping in the near future.
0: And this is another Top Hill recording yeah. podcast premiere, man. Oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks
1: again, man. Hey, thank you, buddy. Cheers,
2: guys. Bye.